A group of attorneys known as the Fifth Street Lawyers because of the location of the courthouse and their storefront offices were hanging around the corridors, as usual, waiting for appointments as government paid counsel to indigent defendants. Two of the regulars, a tall, thin attorney in a frayed sharkskin suit and an obese, middle-aged lawyer who had once been disciplined for soliciting cases in the basement cell block, were muttering their distress. They had been tentatively appointed to represent the five accused Watergate burglars and had then been informed that the men had retained their own counsel, which is unusual. Woodward went inside the courtroom. One person stood out. In a middle row sat a young man with fashionably long hair and an expensive suit with slightly flared lapels, his chin high, his eyes searching the room as if he were in unfamiliar surroundings. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Usually I get to do the introductions of the guests on the show, but uh, as you may have already heard, hopefully you're li- if this is your first episode, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us at One Heat Minute Productions. But I, I've allowed my dear friend Maria Lewis to um, help me introduce my incredible next guest. Uh, I'll start it and then I'll let her finish it because she actually reveals that guest's name. We're talking about one of the most blisteringly hilarious satirists in this country, um, whether it's in print form, whether it's on uh, his great series of work all across the feed, SBS. You can follow everything that he did there on his Twitter, uh, whether it's his fortnightly sketches for the 7.30 report on the ABC or whether it's being a TV host on Pointless. And even... Um, his own limited audio series, Riot Act, where um, he's kind of the narrator and the, the star, if you like, um, along with Dan Illich um, uh, in, in the production. And uh, I'll let the incredible Maria Lewis right now introduce him. I just want to say, actually, I'll say two messages. <laughs> I was, we were talking about some of your guests, and I've worked with them in a journalistic capacity <laughs> at so many so many different levels of journalists like oh, I worked with this person at this newspaper oh man I worked with this person at this online publication that we both hated um, or oh, I worked with this person on that show at SBS which is the case with the wonderful Mark Humphrey who I have to say is the perfect guest to have on a podcast about all the president's men because he has the physical uh physical makeup and stature of a Nixon staffer that would <laughs> for sure be involved in a cover-up. I remember when Trump got elected, it was like fucking, it was A, horrible and people crying in the newsroom, but B, really exciting um, for storytelling purposes because we knew that we could have Mark Humphreys portray anyone of the Trump children at any time <laughs> if we needed him to in a skit. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome the amazing, the hilarious, the awesome Mark Humphreys. Mark, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. Oh, Blake. Well, thank you for that intro. Although those introductions, thank you for both of them. Uh, big shout out to the, the wonderful Maria Lewis. Yes, no, I do. I do do a mean Ivanka. And, um, uh, but, you know, I was, I was cursed with the... Uh, I'm, I, I think I'm prepared to say I'm, I'm a doppelganger for Eric Trump. And uh, it's awful. It's just of all the people that you could look like. I think uh, I think I, I you know pulled the short straw. Um, Look, no, thank you, short, thank you, short straw for everyday life, but the, oh, yeah. but but a, but a gold nugget for your particular <laughs> brand of whimsy because yeah. it's just, I mean, it is almost like you don't have much work to do, Mark. You can mm. just like he's he's helping you with all the content. It's just that you just dress it up and. 
the sketches basically write themselves. Uh, I I wish they would write themselves. Like, <laughs> I, 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 it would save me a lot of time. But yes, no, I know, I know, I do know what you mean. They, they certainly, uh, yeah, yes, the Trump family certainly offers up uh, uh, a little bit too much material, and um, I find that I tend to have to kind of just choose, pick my pick my spots uh, of when to, to to go with a Trump thing because you know it's so you know well documented by the American satirists and. Um, I only really like to touch it if it's if there's like an Australian angle or something specifically Eric Trump, just because uh, <laughs> again I, I don't have to spend hours in the you know there's no like uh, Danny DeVito Oswald Cobblepot kind <laughs> of situation with the makeup department. So um, yeah, uh, I'll be keeping my eye on them. <laughs> oh, so great. Well, look, let's let's rush into the minute because we have lots to talk about. Um, this is a minute-by-minute examination of the incredibly prescient 1976 film directed by Alan J. Pakula and written well, well, written um, by William Goldman from the script, um, oh, sorry, from the novel, actually, by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. It is, of course, All the President's Men. This is the sixth minute I'm going to go through with Mark as we see Base 1 to Unit 1 trying to warn um, some really oversized suit-wearing white-collar criminals that there is some activity in the Watergate building despite their completely obvious break-in um, and uh, and that all sort of going slightly pear-shaped. So Mark and I are going to watch it with uh, together right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and use that as a portal to talk about everything all the President's Men. Base 1 to Unit 1. Base one to unit one. We have some activity here. Silence is advised. Shut it off. Base one to unit one. Lights on the eighth floor. Base one to unit one. Is there anybody there? There's people. People on the balcony, armed people. Base one to unit one. Base one to unit one. There it is, Mark. It bookends with a man standing across from Watergate in what I think is like, if that's a residential building, it is the most obvious break-in of all time because like using torches <laughs> in that darkened building, of course someone's <laughs> going to see. Like even even Robert Zemeckis took the piss out of in Forrest Gump and had Forrest call in the Watergate break-in because it's so bleedingly obvious that of course they're going to get caught. I'd forgotten that. That was, a, yeah, I've forgotten that wonderful moment from Forrest Gump. Um, I mean, no, I've got to say, a perfect minute, by the way, the way that it bookends. I know Maria... Maria Lewis had 70% black screen or something to that effect <laughs> in her minute. This is a beautiful minute. This is starts and ends with the same same guy. And um, I, I think this minute really does a very good job of uh, kind of putting, at least for me, putting me in the position of the burglars. I was shitting myself uh, yes. for them, even though they're in the wrong. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because they're just, they're completely cornered and they're outmatched. Mm. And yeah. this guy who has to pretend to be well, ultimately, is being calm intentionally. Like he doesn't want to attract attention because then, obviously, he might get uh, pinched at the same time in the same action. But yeah, it's mm. it's it's immediately like, oh, there's no way they're going to escape. 
I think even mm. from the just the first second when they're in there, it's like there's no way they're they're, they're boxed in. They're using yeah. these torches. They're coming to these windows, and once the lights start flickering on on the floors around them, it's just like oh, it's only a matter of time. These guys are pinched. That's it. There's never a second you think like in other movies. There's like oh, someone's going to get away. Even the guy who's like we got to go. Like even that guy. Yeah. Um, like th- yeah. They're, they're completely done. Yeah. And you, because you know, obviously you know the story. You, yeah. There's the, the, there's no, it's funny how there's the, the tension is that, you know, they're going to be caught and, and, uh, but they don't necessarily necessarily know that you've, you've almost got something over them. Um, the, the interesting thing that you said about the white collar is that, yeah, about uh, white, white collar criminals is just, yes, it's how well dressed, uh, they are for, for in my head a burglary is um, a lot shabbier, but uh, they look like they've just come from a you know uh, you know board meeting and then oh let's go let's it's go like, rummage around it's some a drawers. boozy white collar dinner somewhere some corporate <laughs> steakhouse you know I'll just have the rump you know get charged eighty dollars for a ridiculously mediocre steak because the markup is there like that's what these guys look like and you know after coming out of talking 177 episodes of heat like these guys don't look like professional crooks to me you know yeah i think that's there's there's your problem there's um then they're not and even the also it kind of feels i want to come back to the rubber gloves because it's weird like they're wearing these gloves these latex gloves and they're sticky taping them presumably to withhold their identity at some point from anyone who could potentially get a fingerprint but they're wearing these open suits they're sweating their hair's all over the place it's just like <laughs> if, if you want to find these guys presumably you're going to kind of know that they were there even if it's not the fingerprints because of all the other things that mm. is wrong with that picture but them not knowing that is sort of that great blissfully unawares thing that on rewatch you're just like of course they were going to get pinched of course mm. this, this was all blatant and it's not a it's not a fashion competition, obviously, but the the police officers are much shabbier. They're uh, they they I, they almost to me look like a rival gang, like almost <laughs> like a, a rival burglary, and they uh, almost sort of imagine a scenario where the two two gangs meet and try to uh, run off with the goods. But um, uh, yeah, so, you're thinking uh, yeah. of a dance fight with the sharks, and I know you just want to say it, Mark. You want to say that these guys need to. That this needs to the police and these suited people are going to come up against each other. Um, well, any West Side Story reference will always go down very well with me. Uh, so for those who don't know, I have a separate Twitter account at Mark's Musicals where I just talk about musicals. I, uh, I'm, I'm googling it right now. I didn't. I didn't. But I'm oh, Welcome, welcome. Oh my god. <laughs> so uh, yes, is there anything else that stands out? I mean, I think also. Do we know what happened with the guy opposite in in the other window? Is it was he arrested as well? I can't remember. Is he part of that? Did they dob him in? Do you know? Do you know? Well, he's part of the overarching Watergate conspiracy, but I don't know if he's ever named. And like I've been in preparation for this minute. Um, in preparation for this minute, I've I was scouring the book, like the details around the book, to see if this the so called sixth. Watergate burglar was named and I just couldn't find anything and I'm sure with some more creative googling there might be some associations but it was also like a little bit it's also a little bit confusing because they do the whole base one to unit one base one to unit one and then they they call each other by another moniker on the airwaves and so I was always wondering if there were multiple people but obviously it seems that there's a sixth one but yeah no you don't you don't see them named and I've read 
the, mm. the section of the book over and over again where people are indicted there about who was a Watergate burglar. And I don't think that anyone further gets pinched because really they then become the most outer layer mm-hmm. of the investigation. It then becomes just charting you know, this by concentric circles, by following the money, by sort of eking out and, and, and trying to find sources who will reveal things to them all along the way um, mm-hmm. to go up and up and up. And that person might have just been, you know, any number of one of their associates. Mm. I think one of the other things that this minute does very well is um, I'd forgotten because it had been a few years since I'd watched it. I, I, I own it on DVD, but it, it's, it's, it's been a few years since I watched it. And I forgot how... It's very difficult to stop watching this film in the sense of yes. that's that's a great tense moment and then everything that follows, although completely different in the style of tension that is created, is so thoroughly captivating that um, I think I've become accustomed to stopping and starting things because of you know, it's it's still because we can, because yes. you know, I have two, two children and all the sorts of things and you watch <laughs> things bit by bit. This was something where I went I'm going to need to go to a library and, <laughs> and really do this properly because I wasn't, I wasn't able to just walk away from it. And so I think that's, that's an, a really nice tight minute that sets up the, the ongoing sort of tension of how they're going to unravel this. Um, yeah. No, I've, I've got it. It's a good minute. You've <laughs> it's, you, you it's, picked well for me. Oh, well, look, it's, it's also a credit to Pacula and it's a credit to William Goldman is – that it is very stripped back, but it is extremely tense. You know, just mm. overwhelming darkness, like the, you know, blinding, blinding uh, fluorescent lights as soon as they come on, like the illumination of that and how this city seems to like be these like little caverns of darkness and then the lights come on and all these little creatures scurry around. And so it does all that beautiful stuff and and really does set it up and then we, we start moving down and it's only in this darkness, you know, it's in this darkness that's trying to connect you know, the very beginnings of the film with Nixon, you know, uh, in, in full light, in full glory, and the darkness that kicks this off in this uh, in this little National Democratic office. But that, That's a very good point. And also from a sound perspective, cutting between sort of the, the, the street sounds and the dead silence. Yes. And, and, the, and that, that juxtaposition, I think, is very effective as well. Yeah, you, you're an audio story tell, storyteller. You know what it's like when you're, you know, putting a, a, a radio station or something like that in the background. It's all of that atmospherics that this movie does yeah. so well it, it either chooses mm. to have a lot of it or it doesn't have much at all the power of silence is so interesting especially how it can be used in in what i do using it in comedy i was i've been on tour recently with each each year i do a show called the war on this Something. year obviously yes. yeah, so last year the war on 2019 i imagine we'll do the war on 2020 <laughs> if, if the if the planet is still here by the end of the year and and there was one section of uh, a piece that I was doing in the show that I really believed in the line, but I couldn't work out why I, why it wasn't landing. And Charles Firth, who is who created the chase and is on tour with us, um, said, "Oh Mark, I just think that pause you've got between the setup and the punchline, drag that out, see how long you can <laughs> hold it." And, and I went, "That's interesting." And I went out there and I basically did, did the line and then stood there in silence and then did the punchline and it was just, you know, it was night and day. It was, it was completely different, huge response. And so just the, the effect of silence, obviously, in what I do, but the, the power of silence in, in, in drama in terms of creating tension, uh, it's fascinating that you can actually do a lot 
by doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, and and just the the stillness. And especially with these guys who are waiting for people to answer, there's nothing more powerful than just sort of saying something and waiting for a response. Oh, yes. The yes. agony of responses is so great. Oh, and, yeah. and and also here, we know the walkie-talkie's turned off, but our mate mm. across the street, he doesn't. And so mm. when he's like base one to unit one, it's a very easy filmmaking, editing, manipulation to speed that up because, you know, he doesn't know that they can't hear him and, you know, cutting back to the walkie-talkie that's turned off or something like that. There's a lot of tropes that you see would be used from someone who's a little bit less confident. But it's like, based on unit one, yawning gap. Like, yawning. You could drive a bus through it. And it's like, that is so much more powerful because they're just not talking anymore. And, and yeah, I agree with you. It's just, uh, silence in this movie is is a huge thing. And it's, one of the biggest contrasts in, say, the Spielberg, you know, loving prequel of this movie, essentially, which is The Post, is that is a movie that is is richly dramatic and to the point of probably melodrama. And you get lots of music, lots of tones, lots of manipulation telling you what to do. And then you compare it with all the President's Men and it feels like you're on another planet because it's mm-hmm. just sparse, allows for things to sit you know, and, mm. and, and it's not trying to tell you how to feel in any number of the scenes you're doing. It's just sort of happening and unfolding. Mm. And when there is music, it kind of comes in and swells and shocks you or, t- you know, tinkers in there and, and sort of manipulates you. But it's not it's not constantly telling you what you need to think or you, what you need to feel. Mm. I, might be, I might be wrong, but I feel like, uh, correct me if I am, the, the, the lookout is the one who tells them to be quiet um, because there's people coming, but then the lookout is also the one who's hello, hello, uh, <laughs> talk to me. Uh, so yes, I feel like he's not the, he's not the best member of the team, but uh, that's why he's that's why he's in a separate building. Look, so, Mark, these are not very bright guys. In the, in the parlance of this movie, I keep see, thinking this at the beginning of this movie. I never thought it's like some lines just end up resonating with you with the entire film, and I'm like, these are not very bright guys. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 really incredible. So this movie and you, you haven't watched it in a while, but you're a satirist, and so it's it's almost impossible for me to not start going down the rabbit holes with you uh, around what really resonates with you in this movie and and how it maybe influences or informs the way that you work now. Like, what are those things that really scratch you when you watch this movie? Aside from this sort of perfect little bookended minute that we're talking about. There's a few things, so I'll, I'll, apologies in advance that I'll jump around because there's a whole bunch of things that that, that struck me rewatching it. Um, one, for instance, is uh, more broadly the because of what Woodward and Bernstein's work ultimately, you know, contributed to in, in the sense of bringing down a president. Uh, I think it's created this uh, unfortunate situation where we. Uh, be- still believe that journalism can achieve these, you know, immense things. And I'm starting to worry now that that I, I, I don't want to be too cynical, I, I, but I do wonder if that is still the case. It was funny when when Bob Woodward announced that he was doing a Trump book, Fear, yes. in 2018. I, I'm sure I wasn't alone in having, at least for a moment, a thought of like, oh, this will bring down the president. Oh, like, if like Bob, here it if is. Bob Woodward Bob Woodward's is, yeah, coming exactly. out like the champ is here. You know, the guy who's done <laughs> yeah. it before. Like we couldn't He's wait. I agree. Case. I agree. You know, as a fan of all the presidents, man, I was like, oh, this book is going to be revelatory. They can't yeah. ignore it if Bob Woodward's writing about it. 
Yes, exactly. So <laughs> I said both I think, of us at that time. Yeah, that's right. So, but I, I think, I mean, maybe, yeah, so I wonder whether anything can happen like that again, you know, in this, and I, I hate using phrases like post-truth and fake news and all that sort of stuff, but in the, in, in, the, in the current time period, yes, can journalism still have that impact when there's so much of the, um, uh, of the, uh, the population that either is switched off from the news or doesn't trust it. And so I, I guess watching it, I feel sort of nostalgic for the power of the, of the paper, the power of the, of the front page and, 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 that, and that type of journalism. And of course, there, of course, there are examples today of journalism that is achieving, that has results. I think Four Corners in Australia is, is, a, is a brilliant example where the number of times that Four Corners will do a story, and for any um, listeners overseas, Four Corners is a, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a current it's a cur- affairs. Current affairs show on our public broadcaster, the ABC. Yes. And, and not only is Four Corners still doing it, they've like, Four Corners themselves have toppled local politicians. Mm. Many, yeah, <laughs> many. Exactly. This is it. So it's I. I it, to me, it's sort of always. Anytime you you see what Four Corners is about to do a story on, you can put money down that there's going to be a royal commission into, into yeah. whatever that particular topic is. Um, so uh, there are examples that, where these things you know, can still have an impact. You know, Mark. I, I mean. I know you're, you're a kind of humble guy, so I don't mean to toot your horn, but I think it's also about it's a tandem thing now. It's that there is a there's not only the incredible journalistic endeavors and, and great publications, and like whether it's a you know a, a TV publication like Four Corners, like as an institution that just has this ethos of we're going to do great stories, and the ABC just in general as a you know, and, and you've worked for both our public broadcasters, whether that's SBS or ABC. It's like there are some editorial institutions in this country we're lucky um and in other countries definitely that they just have this rigorous journalistic ethos and it just continues to go no matter who is trying to disrupt it and i think also when you pair that great journalistic ethos and real reporting with some really beautiful satirical skewering now and then (laughs) that sort of points people back to like, what the hell is happening? Like, why is Mark teasing this? Or why is Mark saying this? And you're like, actually, no, I need to go and read about that because if you're making such a blatant and hilarious joke about it, I think it sort of works in tandem. I think it's John Oliver does it a hell of a lot in Mm. his show um, last week tonight, which is when they do their deep dives on stories, they're referencing incredible journalism that's happening all across America, whether it's from the Washington Post or whether it's the New York Times or the, whether it's you know the LA Times or it's the BBC and they'll reference all these stats and great reporting that will sort of give them and sort of use these as collations and then skewer it to death with satire as well. I think it's like that's where I sometimes have hope is that something that you do that, that goes viral that then might point you know another extra thousand or so people to um, a real piece of journalism, <laughs> you know yes. what I mean. At the same time, yeah, it's like, exactly. I think it works in. I think it works in tandem. I think that heart that's heartening because it's actually the you thing that insults someone on social media and makes it go viral and makes a topic hang around. But then it's also the in tandem. There's these other great stories that are happening on the sideline. Yes, that, that's that's my hope that that the, the the piece of content that I that I make is either um, rewarding people who are already in tune, people who already know what's going on and, and just, you know, giving a sort of um, a, a take on it that they might enjoy or being a gateway into that topic for people who 
you know, aren't necessarily as engaged. Occasionally, I have heard people say, "Oh, I get my God, I could I couldn't believe when I heard this." Um, <laughs> oh, I, oh, the only news I get is from from your sketches, and like, please don't do that. <laughs> Here's a disclaimer: Look, watch my sketches, but that's not the only news. Yeah, for the love not, of God, please let it be a jumping-off point. Uh, yeah, but what I think someone like John Oliver does does very well. And I think it happens here with uh, the weekly and Mad as Hell and uh, Mad as Hell is the- is outstanding, absolutely outstanding. Yeah. Weekly is very very good. Mad as Hell has been doing, you know, is is just taking that to the the absurdest, absurdest yeah. degree. I uh, and I think yes, with John John Oliver, I think what John Oliver does brilliantly is it it actually it is researched to the point that it's. It shouldn't be a substitute for the news, but if if by chance you didn't watch the news, it's not a bad substitute because no. there's actually some journalism. Yeah, there's actually a lot of journalism involved in putting that together. Not only referencing um, existing journalistic sources, but their own team going out and sourcing information themselves. So um, no, they're, they're, I think John Oliver's found a very good way of of um, being a you know hilarious, but also providing a kind of valuable you know, news service. Can I ask, um, can I ask you before you go on to your next point? Is and this may actually come in is, you know, I I love watching your stuff, Mark, particularly because of the what what you invariably skewer, whether it's particularly Australian, you know, political fuckery. I'll go out there and I'll call it, that's what it is. It's Australian <laughs> political fuckery, um, uh, uh, or or um, corporate. Um, corporate fuckery that's happening in the country and how that's in you know interconnected with politics, um, and I and I love I love watching it. But I wanted to ask you is in all of the things that you've covered when you went back to watch all the president's men, did it seem quaint in a way more quaint now, like revisiting it when in the context of some of the things that you've covered? I think it was only quite. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I if it resonated with me from a kind of satirical standpoint. I think I, I saw more kind of parallels between like when I was at SP, actually, and even now, I'm, I'm, right now I'm at the uh, ABC. The I'm, I'm, being in a newsroom uh, during a major event that hasn't changed. That the the, the sort of excitement. Of seeing the, the scene where um, uh, I'm trying to think of the the, the, the woman's name, but where, where Woodward basically drags, drags he drags, drags Sally Aitken, one go. of their colleagues, back into the office because she mm. tells him that over some drinks, <laughs> over some drinks, the actor's name is Penny Fuller. She's amazing. It's one of the best scenes yeah. in the movie. It's, and he, and he yeah. drags her back in and says, "This guy said that he wrote the Canuck letter." And it gets Hell, yeah. leads into that beautiful robot scene. Was like, I don't care yeah, where always... you had that conversation with Sally. <laughs> I care what you said to Sally. There's always something thrilling about watching something where someone says, "Tell him exactly what you just told me." Um, <laughs> that's always, you know, oh, this is a big thing. Um, but I, I never saw someone, you know, drag a colleague across an office. But I know there were moments. Uh, I do remember a day at SBS where there was a breaking story. And there was a, uh, a frisson. There was a, there was a, there was an absolute energy and electricity in the newsroom, and there were people running around. And uh, and and because you know, obviously, we were adjacent to it in the sense of being satirists, things would sort of trickle down to us, or 
you'd you'd grab someone and say, hey, what's what's that about? And they'd say, oh my god, blah 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 blah. I think it was actually a story about Wyatt. I mean, it seems like so trivial now, but it was. I think it was that Wyatt Roy, who was uh, an MP, a federal MP, was uh, was in Iraq and was um, uh, caught in crossfire or something. That was the sort of story. And SBS, I think, had the had the scoop. Uh, and there was so there was this. Yeah, it was well. A that's a story. A, polit- a politician stuck in the crossfire in Iraq is a story. Yeah. That's a story. It's got some that's legs, not- especially when it's an international exclusive. Yeah. So I, I, that was that. That was our sort of all the president's men <laughs> moment. I mean, similarly, I was in I was in the SBS newsroom the day of the I think it was the third presidential debate between Trump and Clinton, mm. and that was fascinating because because it, it, it's it's everyone glued to the screens, and then there would just be occasional eruptions of laughter um, because of some idiotic thing that Trump had said. And it's so extraordinary to think how, I don't want to say naive, but how safe we felt, I guess. I mean, sorry, and maybe there are people out there who like Trump. uh, And if you do, uh, let me just say, fuck you. But but no, there was just a kind of, it wasn't a partisan thing. It wasn't like left and right. It was just like this guy doesn't matter what. This what is a, it's, it's got to be a joke. It's got to be it's, a joke. It's this too guy too funny to not yeah. be a joke. This guy is making a complete fool of himself <laughs> against the most qualified can, presidential candidate in U.S. history. Uh, <laughs> you know, someone who's already spent eight years in the White House. Someone who was Secretary of State. You know, they, there's just no way this clown. And so it was. It was Entertaining, but yeah, that was you know, and that was something where everyone was was glued to that. And so I've always enjoyed those moments being in a newsroom and having echoes of all the president's men. One other thing I would say about the newsroom, and and and, and this, I'm I'm probably reading far too much into this, but I'm a huge. Can I just fan say you're actually the? I'm, I couldn't wait for someone to say it. <laughs> I couldn't wait. There's always someone in one of these minute-by-minute projects that goes, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this. Let me tell you, we're about to do 138 hours on this thing. You're not. You're it's, not. A very tri- it's a very trivial observation, but I'm a huge fan of Oliver Stone's Wall Street. Mm. I, I, I love that film. And I feel watching Wall Street, even though it's not a newsroom, but the energy of the office where Bud Fox works is to me very, very similar to mm. the energy of a newsroom. And the layout feels very similar to me. And I wonder whether there's any conscious choice that Oliver Stone made in that sense, purely because there are two casting, two cast members that overlap. Uh, Hal Holbrook. Yeah. And James Caron. So James Caron has a very small role in All the President's Men. He's um, uh, the lawyer of... Um, Stephen Collins's character, um, uh, whose name I've, has just Hugh escaped Sloan. me. Hugh he's, Sloan. He's Hugh Sloan's lawyer. He, he basically fields a couple of questions at a press conference. Yes. And I wondered whether, yes, it, it might just be pure, pure speculation, but yeah, in my head, watching this again made me, reminded me of the energy of Wall Street and made me go, oh, God, i got to watch Wall Street again. Look, um, I, I don't think you're necessarily wrong because, you know, I, I think there's a... There's that same big dick energy of Ben Bradley, um, yes, and and Robards exactly. and 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 um, Gordon Gecko, Michael Douglas. They've got oh, that same hierarchically, you know, that omnipresence. They're just in an office, but when you're out in that layout, and it's that open, 
sort of 70s, 80s office layout where newsrooms and mirrored, you know, because newsrooms are collaborative spaces. So like when corporate, especially like selling, selling corporate places needed that hum and that buzz and that, that vibe, but mm. they're both, they both got these huge shadows that have been cast over the whole newsroom mm. with these editorial characters that are on the fringes. Yes, but you're so right about the big dick energy. I think that's that is absolutely <laughs> that's the feeling that comes across in both of those. Um, now you mentioned fuckery before, and I'm glad you did because <laughs> this is a really niche observation, but it's something that I'd forgotten. When uh, during one of the encounters between Woodward and Deep Throat, they talk about rat fucking. Rat fucking. And and. The reason that resonated for me is that one of my favorite quotes to throw into a sketch for really no reason um, <laughs> is, is, a, is a quote attributed to Kevin Rudd, uh, former Prime Minister, Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, who <laughs> during the 2009 Copenhagen Climate Change Conference reportedly said something to the effect of, those Chinese fuckers are trying to rat fuck us. And it's the Bless. only other time I've heard rat fucking used yeah those are the only two examples i've heard i'm sure it's been used loads but in my life i've only come across rat fucking twice and and it's kevin rudd and it's all the president's men so there's a little that's a Look, little in there. so uh, whether whether rudd is a all the president's men fan i don't i don't know Maybe i would have to say that he is i mean <laughs> if you've seen his filibuster losing speech which i'm sure you've watched on repeat and cackled your life <laughs> uh, cackled your life away his filibuster lo- you know election losing speech um you know, he's he's a guy who has an affinity for wanting to do good in the world and then just it all went pear-shaped, right? So, mm. um, yeah. but yeah, like rat fucking, it, it, that, that's, a, that's our current Australian politics because rat fucking in the context of all the president's men and when they were talking about Donald Segretti and his team of folk, I mean, they go into it in much more detail in the, in the book, um, uh, but it's Robert Walden's character. They're talking about messing with your opposing partner's on the campaign trail, making up things, sending things out on their stationery, you know, the Canuck letter being one of them. But I think that like rap fucking is political campaigning in 2019, like, mm-hmm. like in 2019, 2020, like 2016, that's what it was. Like it was Trump, oh. Trump not sending out something to insult someone going to a debate and, and abusing someone verbally. Mm. And the rap fucking was all out there in the open. So it yeah. just feels like it's sort of outmoded because, <laughs> The rat fucking is so like blatant now. You don't need to be covert. Oh. It's overt. It's right in front no. of us. No, I mean there was a I think there's a US congressman this week who put out a doctored image of Obama with the uh, Iranian uh, president, I think it was, and, and just like and and people called him out on it. But he, and his response was uh, that it was an artistic expression. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, and there's no accountability. There's no accountability. The only accountability we have is at the ballot box. And, and voters aren't holding people accountable. So there's no, we don't have a system set up to, to counter the rat fucking. Um, yeah, because, because the incentive, and it's also the cynicism of the process, which is tough. You know, the, at least in, you know, the, I think one of the major contrasts we're going to butt up against in this show constantly is that, that's what's even more infuriating is, in, in Australia is you can vote apathetically when you're conscripted to vote, essentially. Like, you have to vote in this country. Yeah, You get a fine if you don't. Yeah. Um, there's very sort of rare circumstances where you would get away with not registering to vote. Um, mm. And there are still people who are apathetic and write, go in and, you know, their version of rat fucking is they go into the ballot and they just write 
FU on there, <laughs> like just F yeah. and U and then close it and then put it in there. Um, so in this country, it's, you know, you're trying to hold people to account, but it's also then just all of the apathy that people just have about the political process just in general. Mm. So it's so, yeah. it's so hard. And it's, it's, uh, and, and Trump doesn't make it, Trump doesn't make it easy. He especially doesn't make it easy for anyone who voted for him because this is a guy who like promised he was going to clean the swamp and do this and build this and do that. And none of it's happened. Like mm. none of it's well, happened. Yeah. I think he just installed a new swamp. I think that's yeah. what happened. <laughs> even, um, yes. But, uh, an even better swamp. <laughs> uh, just stands now Trump on the swamp. Another random thought. Uh, William Goldman, I mean, we, everyone, you know, you can't not love um, William Goldman. Another reason I'm a Goldman fan is that he wrote a book uh, in the early 60s called The Season, um, which for theatre fans like myself is uh, basically a, a Bible. Um, in, in, sorry, it was in 1967-68, that's right. So um, what he did is that for an entire Broadway season from 1967 to 68, he went and, sh- and saw every show on Broadway and as either plays or musicals. And what he did is not only did he talk about the individual shows and kind of quasi reviewed them, but he spoke about the business of Broadway and he broke down how everything, how ticket prices are determined, how advertising works, all these sorts of things. It is, it is, even though it's now, yes, what, 50, you know, 50 years old. 50 years old. Yeah. Um, Nearly 60 years old at this point. Jesus Christ. It's just it's still this tome, this this Bible for for theatre lovers, and and just again also just shows the versatility of, of Goldman's writing. I'm a huge Misery fan personally. That's my probably my favourite of his. Um, um, I mean, film out- it, I mean, look, you look at his film output, and it's got movies like All the President's Men. It's got Bush Cassidy and Sundance Kid, and it's got The Princess Bride. It's, a, mm. it's like, yeah. it's extremely versatile and his versatile writing. The season is great and it's good. I had definitely heard of the season and I'm so glad that you pointed it out. But it's like, you know, me on being a film buff on the other side is like, he wrote so many f- essays and books about the film industry. Mm. The big picture, and- adventures in the screen trade, what lies did I tell, where he was just extremely candid about the process of filmmaking and the business of filmmaking and the motivations of studio heads and, and advertisers and, you know, audiences leaning into different movie stars and, and, and sort of had this like very clinical, you know, and, and in the season, it's like very, it's almost like a sports fan, sports fan minded approach, statistical mm you know, breaking down each of the elements because sometimes the the movie the 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 movie magic sort of keeps us blissfully focused on the text and not on the business. And I think what's great about his writing both in the season and in all of his other essays is like he breaks down the business. Mm, like this is what yes. the business is. This is totally. why you cast Robert De Niro. Oh sorry, this is why you cast Robert Redford rather. This is why you you know, this is the biggest movie star of our time up until this point. This is wh- who's mm. going to win in the Oscars. You know, this is why they're going to win in the Oscars because Harvey Weinstein is going to take all these people out to dinner. <laughs> you know what mm. I mean? Like it's like he, uh, he's going to campaign for it. So he was, yeah, he's he's such a prophetic, a prophetic guy. And he hated mm. writing this script, by the way. He hated it. Is that right? Well, yeah. why is that? Well, this is the of all the sources that I've been able to find. It's a number of podcasts, and it's it's his own writing on it. In what lies that I tell, he talks about you know 
firstly just wrangling the script like getting together after he'd written butch cassie and the sundance kid that's how redford had hired him to do it but it was the it was a couple of different versions and people's egos wanting to influence it so it was like him trying to craft it to find the film to find the finished film the different influences coming from redford and pakula to kind of mess with him and get him to craft in the way they wanted it and then even as far as nora efron who's another filmmaker and screenwriter coming in and like submitting scenes to certain things Mm. that they kept in the final product and so when you get down to the nuts and bolts not much of what he actually produced in the original screenplay is gone like it's all there um and and you know there's been a there was in the most recent all the president's memory visited documentary it's a bit of like a robert redford sort of revisionist history where he says that you know he and Pakula just like rewrote the script like basically right. rewrote everything goldman did but then when people some sort of boffins on the internet have gone back and gone actually you know no william goldman published the scripts that he wrote so like right. you haven't really done much at all like a line here a scene has changed order here but it's the same like he's written 90 percent of it so he talks about this one being a real frustration because it because of that influence because obviously he had to adhere so authentically to the book um, and to find the movie in the book because just telling the story of the book is it's not the movie. Um, but it's it, the master, I think, of him is finding the, entertain, the entertaining, finding the thrills, finding the process, finding the characters and all of the restraint. And then the rest is, you know, the kind of rest is history because there, was not, there, there wasn't a great relationship. Um, and particularly, I think it was in... I can't remember if it's what what lies did I tell or Adventures of the Screen Trade, where he talks about a bit of frustration on all the president's men, and I think that that was the you know motivation perhaps for Redford's um, later revisionist history that he took over the writing of the script for Goldman, basically. So it's just one of those. It was one of those messy ones, but right, none right, the, yeah. nonetheless, like. Like Hook. Hook is one of my favourite films, but apparently there's a lot of there's a bit there's a lot of Carrie Fisher in there. There's, oh yeah, uh, there's sort of lots of stuff going on. But um, but William but Goldman too. Like this is the thing, Mark. Secret history stuff, and you mentioned Carrie Fisher. There are countless scripts that William Goldman fixed that uh, he doesn't have his name on. When there are countless filmmakers and screenwriters that he influenced or talked to or reviewed their work and said get rid of this or keep that. And mm-hmm. there are just countless, countless, countless people that he influenced along his, his massive career. And so it's just one of those funny things where, like, even though he wrote all this stuff, he he genuinely, um, you know, he influenced a whole bunch of people as well. I'm sure you've come across this, but any any podcast uh, interview with Aaron Sorkin is always worth listening to just generally. But he, on a couple of them, does talk about his relationship with – yes. Bill Golden, we'll call him Bill Golden because you know we're, we're movie busting, uh, and and, and um, uh, yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's always worth listening to, hearing about that relationship, and just broadly speaking, Aaron Tolkien is is just a fascinating um, writer slash you know now filmmaker to 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 listen to. Uh, you mentioned Princess Bride before as well, and just just this is a discussion for a whole other podcast, but just off the back of Misery and Princess Bride, at some point someone needs to sit down and say what an incredible achievement Rob Reiner pulled off between 1984 oh. and 1992, where you could say, this is Spinal Tap, you could easily say is the greatest comedy of all time. You could make that argument. Yeah, Stand it's, by if, me. It's, if, if it's not the greatest, it's in top five. It's like, in top five. Personally, I'm a, I'm a Bowfinger guy. I'm a Bowfinger and Adam Sandler <laughs> Badges guy. But that, but 
Spinal Tap is in the top five. Um, as is Waiting for Guffman. I also like that one. Oh, um, Guffman's so good. Uh, Stand by Me, you could argue, is the greatest coming of age film of all time. Best King Princess... adaption too. Right. Yes. Princess it's in the Bride. conversation. There's only really one. Like, there's kind of two others. If you're a horror fan, it's probably it. Maybe mm-hmm. mis- maybe misery too, because I, I think that that was based off a of king, and maybe Christine, um, and 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 those others. But the big one is um, the big one is Shawshank. So it's like Shawshank versus Stand by Me, and that's a that's a conversation to be had too. Yeah, right. And then Princess Bride, you could put it as if one of the greatest. I mean, there's a whole bunch of categories you could put it into of fantasy or family or whatever. But uh, and then when Harry met Sally, you could make the argument greatest romantic comedy of all time it's just, it, 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 yeah it's quite extraordinary that 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 run but anyway that's a conversation for another time but just uh credit i'm <laughs> just going to give credit to rob Reiner because i always feel like people forget just what an incredible period that was well it's um, it's so funny that you talk about that because the the director of this very film like rob reiner whose run is really kind of unparalleled mm-hmm. is you've got alan j pakula who his movies at this time He's direct, and, and, and these are just the films that he directed rather than produced. So he makes Clute, The Parallax View, and All the President's Men in a five year period. Mm. Like five years, he's mm. got those. And then, it, you know, there, there are others where, you know, a, vari- a variety of uh, um, different levels of success. Sophie's Choice was a huge movie, presumed innocent, mm. Pelican Brief. But, like, that's a massive to just go mm. one, two, three. Clute, mm. Parallax View, President's Men. Yeah. That's a massive. Yeah. You know, runs of movies like that, and Reiner's run is is a huge one. Um, mm. But uh, but yeah, Bill Bill Goldman, Bill Goldman, anywhere Bill Goldman appears in any director's resume is a good movie. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah, like, it's like pretty much you're pretty you're pretty blessed to have a Bill Goldman script to to be working towards. Uh, this is going to be the dumbest or one of the dumbest observations I'm going to make in this podcast. Uh, but I did something that did strike me as I looked up Alan J. Pakula and and was like, oh, what does the J stand for? And the J stands for. Jay. My middle name is right behind that shrub. I'll finally know what J stands for. From this moment forth, I will be known as Homer J. Simpson. And it reminded <laughs> me of that whole Simpsons episode where Homer J. Simpson goes to find out what the J stands for. And it stands for J. So I wonder whether there's a connection there between the Simpsons and, uh, and well, Alan Jay. I can't think of a better way to get out on this show than that observation. That was absolutely <laughs> outstanding. Look, the brilliant and insightful satirist Mark Humphreys has been my guest today. Mark, thank you so much for being a part of all the President's Minutes. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on so early as a big fan, and it's been great to chat to you about all things Bill Goldman and all things this movie. So thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you, Blake. Great film, great podcast. Like the Washington Post coverage of Watergate, this podcast is the result of a collaborative effort. Thank you so much to my narrator once again, Holly McBride, who is quoting from All the President's Men, uh, the Simon and Schuster edition. Thank you to my amazing guest, Mr. Mark Humphreys, one of Australia's great satirists. You can follow Mark um, because he puts all of his great stuff on Twitter at, at Mark Humphreys. And today, as you would have heard in the podcast, at Mark's Musicals, if you're a musical fan and you want to dine out on his references to Wed's side story amongst many other things i've been blake howard at one blake minute on twitter at atpm pod and if you want to mail us about anything it's mail at oneheatminute.com or simply send us a message page 24 new york times catch you on another episode soon